You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm Chad Dundas. That's Ben Folks. We meet here every single week to chop up all the prominent, newsworthy, and hilarious happenings in the world of mixed martial arts. Ben, how you doing this week? Choking on the smoke? Yeah, it's not pleasant. I'm looking out the window. Normally, I have this view, this nice elevated view of the entire city. Now I look out the window. I just got to take it on faith that the city's out there because I yeah. can't can't see much past my own backyard. You know what is super shitty about uh, late summer, early fall in Montana is that we get wildfire smoke. And you and I live in the Missoula Valley here in beautiful Missoula, Montana, Bad thing about living in a valley is once the smoke blows in, it's awful damn hard to get it out. Yeah. It's like it's like you poured it into a cauldron of sorts and you just can't get it out. The wildfire smoke that we are uh, experiencing at the moment is from California and Washington. So thanks for that, yeah. neighbor. Am I alone in being more bothered by it when it's not even our smoke? Not no, even, that's not quintessentially even, Montanan of you to just be like, oh, this goddamn out-of-state smoke. Yeah. Not even I was gonna say, Montana smoke. You know, good old-fashioned Montana smoke. Then I could yeah, feel like, hey, yeah. at least that one's on us. You know, I feel like we had a pretty good fire season around here, and then the smoke blows in from out-of-state. It's almost as if we all live on one interconnected planet, and each other's choices affect us all. Yeah, it's weird that way. I was going to say the shittiest thing about this season in Montana is how it can change on a goddamn dime. Like it had been pretty nice. Most of the summer we had kind of lucked out smoke wise. And then yesterday evening, all of a sudden you look up at the sun and it, it is transformed into a red and fiery ball in the sky, like an angry ancient God that must be both respected and feared. And that's when, you know, Oh shit, the forest fire smoke is here. It's rolled in. And now you can't even see the goddamn mountains. You can't, you can't barely go outside. It's, it's uh it's not great out there. I'm going to be real honest. Yeah, I fear what it'll do to my summer track workouts. To tell you the truth. Oh yeah, you can't you can't be going out there uh, riding around the tr- running around the track with no. the the weather like this. Might as well you take up tell smoking. People, you want to yeah exactly smoking a pack a day just getting your 400 meters in. Uh, you want to tell the people about the significant uh, health and fitness updates over there at Castle Folks recently that I heard about through the grapevine. Are you referring? to the fact that a Peloton bike has been purchased and not yet delivered. That's that's what I'm talking about. Okay. You get your shoes yet, buddy? You know what? I'm a I'm a passive observer of the Peloton thing at this point. I am not saying yeah, you are for now. I'm not you saying that now. I won't get on board. I'm not saying that I will. I'm just saying for right now, you know, I'm a, I'm going to take a wait and see approach. Yeah, you'll be clipped in and rocking a 30-minute 90s hip-hop ride by next Friday, my guy. I just don't enjoy bike riding for, like, exercise. I, it I think you might change your mind. It feels boring to me. It feels just boring as shit. This, this from the guy who's out running around the high school track. Yeah. See, that, okay. I can go and just, like, do miserable sprint workout kind of stuff and uh, want to feel like I'm going to throw up and everything. But then I, I got out of the house. I did something. You know what I'm saying? You know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to check in with you in one month, okay. see where you're at. Okay. You'll probably be like, hey, I earned a new Peloton badge this week for uh, 
person got a PR, my 30 minute ride. Listen to PR yourself. PR that. Listen to what you become. Went, went ahead and took an EDM ride I don't from even, uh, Robin Arzone. Don't even know what any of these words mean. <laughs> if you haven't already, I would love to implore you to go out and grab a copy of The Blaze. It's my latest novel. It's a mystery, a thriller. I've been hearing from a lot of little co-maniacs out there that they think it's pretty good. Run out and grab The Blaze today on whatever format you like to do your reading. Remember, if you have read it and you did like it, please go ahead and leave me a five-star review over at Amazon or Goodreads or wherever you like. Those reviews do help the book. So do me a favor. Buy, read, rate, and review The Blaze wherever is best for you. Thanks. Uh, Ben, new music alert this week. Uh Uh-oh. Okay. CME listener Ephraim hit us up about his friend's foreign cash. That's C-A-C-H-E, an L.A.-based production duo. Uh, We connected with them. They say they'd love to have their music on the show. So this week, if you like what you hear from Foreign Cash, you can check out more of their stuff over at foreigncash.bandcamp.com or soundcloud.com slash foreigncash. And again, that's C-A-C-H-E, that kind of cash in foreign cash but we're really pleased to be able to uh share their music this week i'm looking you're gonna like i'm it. looking forward to hearing this and based on your recommendation in uh i believe it was the power hour where you were talking about the new nas album yeah yeah king's disease mm-hmm. I, I went ahead listened to that one this week and uh or this weekend and uh i i like the mature nas who's going to go on there talk about paying taxes stuff like that and you're like okay yeah Nas and yeah. I, it seems like Nas and I have somehow, we started out at different places, but ended up kind of, you know, intersecting at some point here in our 40s. It's weird how that happens. Did you get to the track in the middle where he's literally giving out gout tips? Where he's like, look, man, if you've got the gout, you need to get yourself some cherries, some alkaline water, and uh, some lemongrass. Man, okay. Like, that is specific. That is specific. No, I mean, it, sounds like it's, it sounds like Nas has been through some shit. Ben, regarding the gout, and he wants to help everybody out if he can. Cherries, alkaline water, and lemongrass. Well, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. What's going on over there at your place this week? Sounds like you're recording this in a commercial kitchen. Um, there's some stuff. There's some There's some children running around here. Uh, I don't know exactly what they're up to. I'm going to tell you this. Before we started, I had a talk where I was like, okay, I'm going to be recording this thing over here. This is kind of the only spot that I can record it where like the lighting and the sound and camera and everything set up works. And so I need everybody to be like somewhat quiet around there. Went downstairs, came back up. They had set up a makeshift drum kit about <laughs> about eight feet away from here, from where I'm sitting. Okay. And we're yeah, just, not gonna work. just wailing on it. Just some, just, you know, Tommy Lee in his prime kind of wailing on that makeshift drum kit. And I was like, okay, I feel like maybe, maybe I didn't make myself clear. Well, yeah, I mean, we'll take what we can get at this point. Uh, three rounds as usual this week in the co-main event podcast in round number one, Frankie Edgar proved at 135 pounds, he can still have his trademark hard nosed, exciting fights that nobody knows who on earth should have won. How far will that take him at bantamweight? And in round number two, if we've said it once, we've said it a thousand times, don't tempt the MMA gods. Mm -mm. Ryan Bader found that out the hard way this weekend. And in round number three, what's this? Is this that Dana White versus Bellator energy farting, finally starting to jump off a little bit? You said farting. I love it. We shall see. I did. It must have been the combination of Dana White and Bellator uh, 
caused a Freudian slip there. Yeah. I need to say farting. I'm all about it. Oh, that plus, are you fucking kidding me and just saying stuff? But first, like we always do about this time, let's do a little bit of listener mail. Listener mail. First piece of listener mail this week comes to us from Easy Eric Wright. Oh, good. Nice to hear. So I, I used to know a bitch named Eric Wright. <laughs> wow. Okay. Not even, not, not mincing any words over here. I wonder, That's how you really feel. I wonder if Easy Respect Eric. Respect man's memory. I, I, uh, I wonder if Easy Eric Wright was ever caught slipping. I mean, hell no is the answer. Out. Hell no is the answer, You're Chad. That was coming your out hard here. Just remember, remember the man's memory. Let's let's honor it. <laughs> he writes, she didn't get the win, but spare a moment to talk about the hurricane berserker style of Maria Agapova. Can you fight like that and be successful in the UFC? She lost to big underdog Shanna Dobson. This was people are saying many have said <laughs> many people are saying. No, I was looking over on the internet. Okay. Folks, Tell me what you learned saying, from uh, the internet. Well, first of all, uh, there's a cabal of liberal child molesters. Okay. See, I'd are, heard that. I'd heard that one. Yeah. Running the country. No, this is... Uh, Seems like someone should I do something I'm, about that one, honestly. Yeah. If only that were true, someone yeah. would probably get right on it. Uh, Dobson's win over Agapova was called the biggest UFC upset ever in places. Okay. I keep hearing that too. And, and I guess like odds wise, maybe it's true. But also, doesn't that just say, like, maybe you shouldn't be setting crazy odds on any fight where it's like, you know, a, a nine and one fighter versus a, a three and four fight? Like, it's just not enough data on anybody at that point to go crazy with those odds. Because right. th- Especially during the pandemic era where we're like, yeah. we're picking everybody's names out of a crown royal bag, frankly. <laughs> and like, odds makers are going outside and looking at the sun. Uh you know, measuring the distance between a few stars and uh, listening to the breeze, listening yeah. to what whispers on the breeze. And they're being like, I don't know, make her plus 800. That's, yeah. That seems about The thing right. you do is you you take a sheep's entrails and you you throw it down on the table and, you know, you look at the shape that it forms. But the, the point Eric right here makes about uh, the Hurricane Berserker style, that did seem to be a, maybe at least a part of the reason why she lost. I'm not going to say, oh, yeah. I'm not going to go all For the way sure. and say she would have won if she hadn't lost, but she was looking like she was doing all right, but also looking like expending a lot of energy in not necessarily the best ways. And like, she seemed to just kind of hit a wall and that was it. Yeah. She seemed like a delightful weirdsmobile though. Yeah. Up to that point. And like we Maria like a delightful weirdsmobile. She's just going to go out there throwing them bungalows, you know, come hell or high water. And we're going to deal with the consequences. She had won a couple of fights in Invicta last year and then comes into the UFC and beats Hannah Cyphers in June, turns around as we so often do for a somewhat, uh, you know, short notice bout here with, with Shanna Dobson at the Saturday night UFC card and gets TKO'd in the second round. It, 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 it was definitely had the vibe of the person, like almost an old school MMA vibe where uh, one person is going to come out throwing hillbilly haymakers and the other person is going to be like, okay, well, if you're going to do that, I will just take you down. Yeah. Uh, I did enjoy Shanna Dobson is going to just punch her directly in the back of the head several times at that. Oh, yeah. And yeah. Uh, the referee standing by and he's going to say, you know, a couple times, watch the back of the head, watch the back of the head. And it's like, yeah, she's watching it. She's watching her fist all the way into the back of the head. And she knows you're not going to do a damn thing about it. Yeah. So, uh, 
this is a, obviously a, a big upset for Shanna Dobson. Good win for her. Although I would say Maria Agapova seemed like the kind of crazy wild person that the UFC is going to want to have back, probably going to want to keep around. I, I wouldn't be surprised to see her, you know, fighting again on, on, uh, as soon as she, she is physically able, as soon as she's medically cleared. So uh, this is one of those fights where even though it was like allegedly a historic upset and maybe uh, revealed some of the flaws in the style of, of Maria Agapova, it almost felt like it benefited both people. Like Shauna Dobson got the win, which is obviously uh, preferable to the loss. And uh, Maria Agapova went out there and appeared weird enough that we would like to see more from her. Yeah. So uh, I'm going to call it a push. If you're, if you're, uh, Agapova's coach are you going hey I like I like what we're doing with Hurricane Berserker I like love it a lot the, I love the enthusiasm yeah. brings a lot of energy I like that could we just tone it down maybe 20% though yeah that's right <laughs> just a little bit uh, next question this week comes to us from the pastor of disaster oh nice is that yeah is that David Koresh I, I think that was David Koresh I have no idea yeah pretty sure okay uh he or she writes, did you happen to catch Jordan Wright in the prelims break a man's whole shit? But even more interestingly, did you notice in the post-fight interview, we may have a new G whiz, Mr. Dana White, Sage Northcutt type character. Uh, you buying this Beverly Hills Ninja charm offensive? I loved it. I, I thought everything about it. For one thing, when the guy comes out there afterwards and says that he wants to thank, first of all, his mom, without whom none of this is possible, and then goes That's on. actually to, literally true. Yeah. And then goes on to thank his sensei, who happens to be Anthony Hardonk, and then his wrestling coach is Vladimir Matyushenko, and his jiu-jitsu coach is Fabio Leopoldo. I'm like, yeah, all right, I'm on board, man. Like, I don't, yeah. I don't know what that you guys have been getting up to, but I want to hear more about it, and I want to see more about it. Especially like you come out there and you start off with that, that spinning heel kick to the the crown of the head, and it's like, yeah. All right. This is a guy who's thought about how this moment is going to go and is ready to go out there and make it happen. I was just disappointed that we didn't get to see more of him because it got stopped on that cut pretty early on. And that was a bad cut. He did get his whole shit. Broken. A bad cut. Yeah. Although Ike Villanueva's thing kind of seems to be that he is durable and hard to put put away. So like clearly he's frustrated by yeah. that stoppage. You can understand how that would be, but it was a little bit of a, of a bummer that we only get what a minute and yeah, 31 seconds yeah, out like of this minute thing. 30. Yeah. And I would be upset with that too, if I was feeling it, because he was, you know, he got dropped early on. He got caught with those knees in the clinch, but then he was, he seemed like he was getting the fight where he wanted it. Like he was in there close and it's not like we saw enough to know how that would have gone for him over the long term. but it was, I could see you come out of that one for him and you go, man, it got off to about as bad a start as it could have. And then I didn't even get a chance when it seemed like I was finally settling in and, and getting to, to do my stuff. Yeah. I will say it was a minute and 31 seconds that got my attention. Yeah. Uh, because I'm sitting there, you know, we're, we're three fights deep at this point into the prelim cards. I will be perfectly honest. It's not like I'm uh, sitting there pouring over this thing with a fine tooth comb during that period of the evening. Like uh, you're looking up from a bowl fight. of captain crunch every once in a while, when you hear the announcers go, Oh, that's what you're doing. Something similar to that. Yes. Uh, you come out there and you throw the spinning kick straight out the gate. Now you got my attention. Uh, you drop an Anthony Hardonk on the broadcast. Sensei Anthony Hardonk. Yep. Now I'm leaning forward. Now I'm, <laughs> now I'm fully engaged with my television set. And then you go out there 
uh, finished this thing in a minute and 31 seconds with some knees from the clinch, including a nasty gash over Ike Villanueva's eye. And I'm like, okay, I'm on board. Then Jordan gets on the Jordan Wright gets on the mic and uh, and does the Sage Northcut impression. I'm on board, yeah. man. Like, sh- show me some more. Also, uh, I can't tell you that I'm an expert on the previous career of Jordan Wright, but the fact that he came in and weighed in at 200 pounds even leads me to believe that he is perhaps not a light heavyweight. Well, yeah, he said that. He said that, you know, he took this one short notice, not in his weight class. He said, like, you know, didn't cut any weight at all for this, just kind of showed up and fight. So, uh, yeah. I mean, the whole look we got at who Jordan Wright is and everything, I'm talking about talking to John Jones before coming out for this fight and everything. I'm just like, you mentioned with Agapova, uh, this is the kind of thing from Jordan Wright where I'm like, all right, somebody give me a heads up when this dude is going to fight next because I am interested. I would like to see what happens. I agree. Okay, next question this week from Bobito. So I don't know if that's more hip-hop royalty okay. email on the show here from the Stretch and Bobito show. Uh, he writes, so Trevin Jones must be some kind of Frankenstein? Question mark. How else does he survive that first round beating and come back to win? Some kind, like which kind of Frankenstein? Like I didn't know there I mean, were varieties of Frankenstein. The kind that I can take a hellacious beating from Timur Valiev and and come back and score the second round TKO. I assume. Okay. The I, kind of Frankenstein that ain't got no guts in his body. Apparently, yeah. since he got hit in the body and kicked in the body about as hard as you can, and somehow, some way weathered the storm to come back and win. Yeah, and the thing is, usually when it comes to body shots, like you can get, you know, hit in the head, rocked, knocked down, that kind of stuff. And maybe 30 seconds goes by, you get a chance to clear your head and you're back in it and you see people bounce back from that a little bit. It's not often that you see people bounce back within the same fight from really bad body shots, the kind of body shots that just, you know, make them sit down, make them stop and sit down. Because that's how you know that dude was hurt. Like when he got hit with it and he like his body said, all right, you know what? We're done here. And then he just willed himself to be like, oh, oh they're going to stop it. If you do that, you got to stand back up and, and get back in this fight. But I thought it was interesting. This fight was one example. Uh, and then the the next fight uh, that I think this was a uh, Chris Tognoni. Tognoni. I'm not, there's no way I'm saying yeah, that right. I, I, I believe before we've been saying Chris to- Tyone, Tyone, but on this on this broadcast, it seemed like they were saying like Chris Ta- Tonyoni or something okay. like that. Same guy. Anyway, yeah, he refs this fight, and then he also refs the Daniel Rodriguez uh, Dwight Grant fight later on, and they both kind of have similar things in that like they're big comebacks for somebody, and yet like somebody is hurt bad in the first round. It looks like they're get- they're close to getting stopped. He gives them a chance to show that they're still in it and to fight through it. They do. And then they come back. And then when it's their turn to hurt the other guy and drop the other guy and put him in trouble, it doesn't seem like he gives the other guy the same chance. And it, yeah. like, I don't even know if that's a fair standard to apply to refing or not, but it did seem like it, it highlighted some things for me about the difficulty of the ref's job. And there's almost like a point where we see these big comebacks like this one, like the Trevin Jones one here, where he's taking some of those body shots and you're going, man, he looks done. Like get in there and and stop that guy. And he lets him go. And then he comes back and he gets the uh, comeback win in the second round. And I, there's a part of me at this point that almost goes, oh no. Like every time we see one of these, 
it only justifies all the fighters who are like, no, let me go out on my shield. Like, you never know. He might turn it around. Even if it looks like he's just getting absolutely mauled, who knows? Maybe, you know, he refreshes himself between rounds and he comes out there and he gets it stuck. Like, it almost feels like it's sending all the wrong messages to corners, to refs, to everybody. Like, hey, because it happens so rarely that somebody gets a, a comeback like this. And every time it happens, it feels like, did we just doom ourselves to even more of the non-stoppages? based on the belief that hey a comeback could be just around the corner yeah and this and obviously you can't we're not in there in the cage so it's really hard to apply the standard we're not standing right next to timor valiev when he gets you know punched and hurt against the fence but it did seem like especially in this fight a very weird dynamic where as you said uh trevin jones gets a great opportunity to weather the storm here and stay in the fight and then the, the moment that valiev gets hurt, we step in with the stoppage. And one of the things that seemed very weird about it is that up to this point, this fight had played very much as like a showcase bout yeah. for Timor Valiev, who obviously comes from the same camp as Frankie Edgar. He's a training partner out there uh, in the great city of Tom's River. And uh, and like the, the kind of the UFC broadcast team was laying it on a little thick and he looked really good yeah. in the early going of this fight with, with the striking and, and obviously seemed on the verge of winning, as we said there in the first round, and then gets hurt uh in the second and ends up uh ends up getting stopped just shy of two minutes into the second round it was it's it's it was a very odd turn of events and again uh yet another situation on this same card where i came out of it kind of being like okay i would watch either of those two people fight again like i would definitely like to see what valiev is is capable of it seemed like he was doing great seemed like he's got all kinds of skills and of course for for trevin jones to go out there and get the win okay show me more yeah, I guess I just wonder, like, is it a fair thing to ask of the ref? Like, hey, if you're going to let one guy, you know, give him a lot of rope, give him a lot of chances to show that he's still in the fight. Do you owe it to the other guy when fortunes are reversed? Like, because then I could see how if you're in, if you're the referee, you might in your mind at that point just be going, man, if I let them both just beat this shit out of each other and never stop any people are going to be like, is this guy even paying attention? Like, what does it take for this guy to stop a fight? Like he doesn't ever seem to see anything that troubles him. Uh, I don't know. And we'll probably end up talking more about it in round two, when we talk about the, the Ryan Bader and, and, and Nemkov fight, but there's another one where you see like a referee kind of seeing the, the, the moment and taking in all the, the factors, like the experience of the fighters, the stakes of the fight, the situation, and is he right to say like, all right, I'm going to give this guy a lot of chances to show that he's still in it. And it, sometimes it looks bad in the moment, but then sometimes I think when you go back, like the, the ref doesn't know the future. He doesn't know what's about to happen. We get the benefit of hindsight. And when somebody survives through a bad beating and comes back and scores that comeback win, then we can be like, see, that's why you should let it go. And how many times have we seen that situation where it just gets worse and worse and worse and everybody is going to the ref like you should have stopped it, you know, 30 seconds ago. Yeah. I mean, I guess the only thing that you could ask is that a referee will bring an even handed and uh, consistent standard to every situation, right? Like well, yeah, you kind of so have to like, deal. Is it like the strike zone? Like, Hey, your strike zone can be all kinds of fucked up as long as it's consistent. Right. Yeah. Well, I mean, just like you need to approach every instance of, of a person getting hurt in a fight as though it is disconnected from everything else that has happened. Right. Yeah. Like you just need to take it on a case by case basis and judge what you are seeing in front of you to the best of your ability. And then, you know, make ultimately what is a judgment call on behind on behalf of the referee to kind of 
on split second notice decide whether or not the athletic contest needs to be called off or whatever. You just you don't want the referee to have one standard for Trevin Jones and another standard for uh, Timor Valiev. You like you you'd right. like to think that both these guys would be given the same opportunities. And like I said, we weren't in there. We weren't as close to it as the referee was. So maybe I don't know. Maybe uh, Valiev was was hurt or seemed to be hurt worse than uh, than. Jones prior to the stoppage and this was the one right where like once they stopped it like it seemed like Valiev was legitimately kind of out of it he like continued to shoot a, a double yeah. leg I believe on uh on Jones so it wasn't like I'm not sure he quite passed the what the fuck test like he may have actually said what the fuck but who knows what what he was responding to at that point. true all right next question this week comes to us from Devin Scott who writes my initial email was going to ask about your thoughts on how the first three UFC events in September have only their main event booked as per the Google machine, and there is not no mention of any of these events on the actual UFC.com site. Instead, I think the question I'd like to send your way is, if you think the UFC uh, could favor this style of matchmaking moving forward, hear me out if you would, pre-COVID-19, pause for my deep sigh, the UFC <laughs> needed to at least make an attempt to put together a card in advance to entice people to buy tickets. Nowadays, the UFC can get away with signing any regional fighter and booking a couple fights a week in advance to fill a card. I know it's hard to fathom twelve to 16,000 people filling a stadium again, but if we get back there, do you think the UFC will miss the ease of not having the stress at least attempting to build a quality card? Sure, the oversaturated cards of old were not always good and not having the cards fall apart due to COVID-19 won't be missed either. Am I making sense here? Please discourse if you will. Now, it's an interesting point. It is an interesting point. It is an interesting question. Uh, And one thing I wonder is if we get back to some semblance of a normal world, whether or not the UFC matchmaking protocol will adjust or whether the UFC is learning what to them could be a valuable lesson during COVID-19. And I don't know any other way to, to uh, explain that lesson other than to say these people will watch anything. Uh, and, <laughs> and like, maybe this is good enough that you, that, you know, we can just go out and sign what I would like to describe as quote, some LFA shit and uh, throw it out there in the cage and people will like it. Or if like we will get back to the previous, you know, some, something resembling the previous, uh, philosophy of UFC matchmaking. I would guess that if you asked people who work at the UFC right now, almost none of them would tell you that they are having all that much fun yeah. with this stuff. Yeah. Like I, I, I'm certain just to like Devin Scott's point, I don't think anybody at the UFC would say, yes, we prefer this yeah. to what we we've, we've found before. a great new way to do things. Yeah. I, I, I mean, I, it's a huge pain in the ass, but I, I, like, yeah. But I think you're right that there is something that maybe they're learning like, okay, these people will watch kind of anything that we put on uh, under the UFC banner. But it is like, it's an interesting point about how, like, I think we're seeing this in so many different ways, like just on macro and micro levels, like how we, our, our lives and our systems of doing things kind of change because of this. And they won't all go back to the way they were when this is over whenever that may be, if, if at all. And the, the idea about like how we had to put together before, like at least some kind of card on paper far enough out to coincide with when tickets go on sale. And I remember, I think it was one of the Frank Mir Brock Lesnar fights, like one of the rematch fights uh, where the UFC announced Frank Mir versus Brock Lesnar. And then very quickly after that, like maybe a week, maybe uh, two weeks, something like that. 
Frank Mir pulled out saying like, he's going to have to have surgery. And I remember talking to Frank Mir's manager about it. And he was like, look, I told them when they wanted to make this fight, I was like, don't announce it yet because we don't know yet. Frank has a doctor's appointment coming up. We don't know yet if he's going to need surgery. Like he, he might need surgery. We, we are not a hundred percent for this date yet. So don't, don't announce it yet. And they turned around and announced it anyway. And at least according to his telling, he was like, I called him up and was like, Hey, what? What did we just say? Like, what what was this conversation I just had with you? I told you, like, it's premature to announce it yet. And the UFC response was, you can't sell tickets without a main event. And he was like, so you just are going to announce that and then rely on card subject to change if like, we pull out and you got all these people to buy tickets for a fight card that's going to be radically different by the time they show up. And they were just, they repeated, you can't sell tickets without a main event. And like that was definitely a concern and affected the way they had to do business and everything. And now everything has changed so much. And you're right. Like the matchmakers, like Dana White is talking to the matchmakers, you know, making fights the day of the event, like trying yeah. to like piece together. Like this guy's opponent falls out. This guy's opponent falls out. There's, you know, adding the, the COVID-19. We already had tons of reasons why fighters might be pulled from fights during fight week or like leading up to it. Now you add this one. And I, yeah, I'm sure it's a huge stressful situation for them but it is also showing them some stuff about like how this can work when you don't have to have the the normal considerations about how you put together a card because you look like Devin scott said kind of in the beginning of this question you look a few weeks ahead on the ufc calendar and it's like they're basically telling you somebody gonna fight somebody and it's gonna be on espn plus on saturday night motherfuckers and that's all we can tell you for sure right now and it's gonna be good enough we know you'll be home. Yes, we so. know you're not going anywhere. Yeah. Uh, was wait was this this was a fight with Frank Mir or was it uh, was this fight with Frank Murr? Because uh, remember the first time they fought it was Frank Murr. Yeah. No. This was up. this was definitely one of the Frank Mir. This is one of the ones like where the, he may or may not have had a horseshoe up his ass, uh, according okay. to the big fella Brock Lesnar. <laughs> uh, well, we've been dealing with a somewhat slippery slope with UFC broadcasts and like you, I guess the quality of competition for a while now, like going back years and years at this point where for first the UFC was like, can we do this many shows in a year? Can we do this many shows in a year? Can we do this many events in a year? And then eventually like, you know, in and out of the Fox deal and the ESPN deal eventually uh, reached this like carrying capacity of 42 events in a year or, or whatever it is. Uh, and throughout that process, I think, I feel like if you've been watching the sport for a while, it's really hard to ignore the, downgrading of competition or like the 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 stretching of the ufc roster to the point where the the talent pool just seems kind of shallow and the whole thing seems somewhat thin which would frankly happen in any professional sport if this was your attitude about it if you just continued to uh you know expand the season and expand the number of teams you're gonna have people out there playing in major league baseball or the nfl or the nba that otherwise wouldn't be on rosters right like you, you continue to expand all that stuff you have to find more people to spill fill the spots and for the ufc like that's been happening over a long period of time and so it's been a somewhat slippery slope and now i wonder we get to pandemic mma where they're just like oh shit we can just grab like as i said before a crown royal bag full of people's names and start picking them out and that everyone seems fine with that so i guess that is sort of a worry of mine that even after we get back to a a quote unquote normalish world, knock on wood, uh, that you would consider this kind of catch as catch can matchmaking style. style. Although, as you said, I would kind of, I would wager that it sucks for the Sean Shelby's of the world, yeah. the Nick Maynard's of the world. I bet they would be far more uh, comfortable in a situation where they could set this stuff up far in advance and, and 
bank on most of the fights coming off instead of what we have today. Yeah, I'm sure that they do not prefer it. Let's say that. Yeah. Well, that is going to do it for listener mail this week. If you have a question, comment, or concern that you would like to air to the podcast in future weeks, you know how to do it. You go to the website, comainevent.com, and click the link in the top right-hand corner of the screen that says, email the podcast. That will get you in touch with us. While you're there, you can sign up for the Breakfast of Champions newsletter, which normally comes out on Friday mornings to catch you up on the news and notes that we miss on all the days that we're not recording the podcast when stuff always happens when news always breaks. The newsletter itself is short. It's informative. We would love to tell you it's funny and it's really easy to unsubscribe. And the last couple weeks, the Breakfast of Champions newsletter has been on hiatus. Yeah. Well, I mean, you don't want to say that it's going to come out every Friday because, you know, you want to keep people guessing. You want to set an achievable standard. Yeah. Yeah. You don't want people to think like, every single week dependably it's going to be there why no. would you want that no. in your in your entertainment product no. uh you want to set a uh you want to set a standard where you're you're telling people look some you're just going to take the week off sometimes, sometimes. and that's you people are just going to have to deal with it and if motherfuckers don't like it they can write their own email okay you know wow what I'm you know what i feel like there's some parallels here between what's going on with the ufc and and for the breakfast of champions vis-a-vis standards of of entertainment you know what that's all I'm going to say on the matter. Okay. Wow. He's done, folks. Uh, that <laughs> that's, all we, that's all we got to say on that subject. We are going to go ahead and get started with round number one right now. Ben, 38-year-old Frankie Edgar made his men's bantamweight debut over the weekend, obviously in the main event of this UFC on ESPN card from the Apex down there in Las Vegas, took on fifth-ranked 135-pounder Pedro Munoz in the five-round affair here. And I guess you would say in classic Frankie Edgar fashion, he wins by split decision after a hard-fought and very close 25 minutes uh, I think you can take a lot of positives out of this for both guys. Uh, you know, Frankie Edgar comes in there at 38 and not just 38. This man turns 39 in a couple of months. So, and he's been a professional fighter for 15 goddamn years. He cut, he, this is the tail end of his 38th year. He's about to turn 39. He looks like he should have been at bantamweight pretty much this whole time. Uh, the former lightweight champion, Frankie Edgar shows up at 135 pounds, looking great still moving like uh, we think of Frankie Edgar being able to move around the cage, still mixing up the combinations, throwing in a little bit of the wrestling as we talked about on our Friday show over on the Patreon page about, you know, whether Frankie would get back to a little bit more wrestling here. I think that that proved to indeed be part of the game plan. Uh, And Pedro Munoz, I think to his credit, obviously was up to the challenge and was out there, if not throwing the same number of shots, I think connecting with the harder shots Yes, yeah. had more, but somehow Frankie Edgar Ben has moved down two two full weight classes from lightweight, and he still looks like the smaller guy, and he still looks like he doesn't have as much power as the guy he's fighting. I don't fucking know how that shit works at all. But we emerge from <laughs> this thing with a split decision win for Frankie Edgar, where I think both everybody got to do their stuff, as we like to say on this show. Both guys showed out. Both guys looked good. 
obviously Munoz is disappointed to not get the win. But what was your uh, what was your overall impression here of Frankie Edgar dipping his toe into bantamweight and emerging here with the uh, with a very Frankie Edgar ish split decision win? Yeah, I mean, first of all, this is a hell of a fight. It really was like all five rounds of this fight. Like I was sitting there watching it and being like, man, especially after you see some of the earlier fights. And I'm not saying it was like a bad fight card or anything. Wasn't a whole lot of star power by the time this fight card went on the air. And no. there, were, there were some good fights some good finishes and everything. But then when you get to the main event, you're like, OK, there is a definite difference in quality between this and a lot of what we've seen under like on the undercard of this event. And just from both guys, it was a hell of a fight. And I was really impressed. Like for me, I thought like, oh man, this is what it takes to see Frank Yeager in a fight with somebody who looks like they're about as his size. Like yeah. he might've been a little bit smaller in Pedro and like definitely did not have the, the one punch power that Pedro Munoz had, but he's 38 has all those, you know, the miles on the odometer from 15 years in the game. And he can, he can take a shot still. Like he, he took a couple hard punches here, uh, took some damage here, but still just tough as all shit and still just a slick, good technical fighter. Like he had several moments there, had Munoz just swinging at air, you know, like Frank Edgar can still kind of make you look stupid in some of these moments. And I, it's, it's really impressive that he can still do it that way. That said, I don't, I, I at the end of this fight came away feeling like that should be Pedro Munoz's fight. If I were him, I'd be pissed off about it. Like I'd be pissed off about losing that decision. What do you think? Um, I thought I, th- I had Frankie uh, basically for 48, 47. I thought that he won rounds two, three, and four. I made a, I made a nice little uh, Munoz sandwich. Okay. I thought that Munoz won rounds one and five. Always like a Munoz uh, so sandwich. I thought, yeah. I thought Frankie was going to win 48, 47. Uh, but like, I think it raises some really interesting questions about like judging these fights and like what you value. Because I think, I mean, this was like a classic case where it seemed like one dude was doing a lot more punching in Frankie Edgar. And I think whether or not it was it was it borne out in the significant strike totals or not, like he was seemed to be landing more punches. But Munoz's punches seemed to be a lot harder. Although, like, I don't know how many of them he was actually landing. Like, clearly he he landed some shots and, like, his his leg kicks were pretty wicked. And you saw Frankie Edgar limping around inside the cage after it was over. But, like, this is one of those ones where, like, which which way do you score it, man? Do you score the guy who seems to be, uh, you know, having the most success in the striking game, which was I thought was Frankie Edgar? Or do you score the guy whose punches just seem to be harder? And, like, I think that according to the rules – and here's – we're going to get – this is like one of the weird like uh, vagaries of the MMA rules. Like I think that the current judging's criteria is that you are supposed to quote score quote impactful yeah. punches. But what does that mean exactly? Like what makes an impactful punch? Is it just that you punch the other guy harder? Because I'll be honest with you, like even though Munoz appeared to be landing the harder strikes, I thought that Frankie Edgar's strikes were affecting Munoz more than Munoz's strikes were affecting Frankie Edgar. Because Frankie Edgar was just like taking that power and walking through it and accepting all those leg kicks, I would add as well. Uh, And then, but then when he would like throw the four punch combo where he lands an uppercut and comes out of it with like a, a hook, I felt like when he landed those punches that Munoz was the one who seemed more affected by the strikes. Like, and that obviously is just my opinion, but like it, it brings to my mind the question of like, what the heck is an impact quote unquote impactful strike? What does that even mean? Well, yeah. I mean, 
it is the judging on this fight is a real question of what you value and not just in that's in the terms of like how do you do you score volume of punches or like you know your perception of the power and the impact of the of the punches but also it seemed like maybe the judges didn't give Munoz a ton of credit for the work he was doing with the leg kicks which were were taking a toll I mean Frank Edgar yeah. He's he's tough, and so he's dealing with it well. But you could see, especially late in the fight, there would be moments where he would try to come forward, and his leg would just sort of give out underneath him. And you're like, okay, that's that's because the guy's been just tenderizing the hell out of your thigh. And yeah. then also, like Frankie Edgar is trying, it seems, to win rounds at points with takedowns, even though for most of the takedowns that he actually got, Munoz is right back up, and Edgar doesn't manage to really do anything with the takedowns. And if you look at if you read the scoring criteria. They kind of specifically say that if you just take, if it's just a brief change of position, like you don't, it doesn't lead to anything. It doesn't lead to any like offense. Then you don't really get a whole lot of credit for that, or you shouldn't get a whole lot of credit for that from the judges. And so it is a real litmus test for each individual judge about what do you value the most in a fight. And honestly, either way you score it, it's a close damn fight. You can see how you'd go to that one and be ready for either possible outcome. Um, and there's a part of me, and I think a part of a lot of MMA fans, where the affection we have for Frankie Edgar, like just as a fighter and the career he's put in, and some of the times when he's been in these fights, like with Benson Henderson or something, and he comes out on the, the bad end of a close split decision fight. And then when you see him get one here at 38, and you're going, you know what? Even if I don't necessarily agree with that outcome, I can't get mad at it. Good for you, Frankie. Glad that you got one. You know, like if it was somebody else, maybe I'd be madder about it. But when it's Frank Yeager, okay, hey, yeah, sure. Give him one. Yeah, the and the, uh, you know, the, the the way that we score takedowns in this sport at this point, like I'm somewhat torn on it at this point because, uh, you know, I agree if you just take someone down for a moment and they are able to to jump right back up to their feet. I don't necessarily know that you have done much damage. I don't necessarily know that that you should score a ton of points. But at the same time, and I believe Dominic Cruz even even pointed this out during this fight, is like Frank Yeager is changing the rhythm of the fight with those takedowns. Like yeah. even if you're forcing Munoz to get back to your to get back to his feet, and even if you're not really keeping him down for very long, even if you're not like punishing him on the ground with with strikes, like you're still changing the fight, and you you're are. still like you've made you're still him think about it, it. yeah. Right, and you're you're making him work, and you're just like sort of changing the uh, the dynamic of of the contest. So, you know, while I'm fully on board with the idea that like an inconsequential takedown shouldn't be enough to like sway around in your favor, I do also I don't think that they're meaningless. At the same time, yeah. I feel like in the modern sport we have the tendency to like uh, to think of them as meaningless if if the other guy gets right back up when I don't, I just think that they are, they're more impactful sometimes than we give them credit for. I think, even though you're not doing a ton of work on the floor. Yeah, that's possible. I mean, speaking of Dominic Cruz though, seeing Frankie Edgar show up here and bantamweight, win a, a close fight against a guy who was absolutely a relevant uh, contender at bantamweight got me thinking like, it, is it entirely possible as we sit here, in the year of our Lord 2020 to think that we might see a Frankie Edgar versus Dominic Cruz fight and that the outcome of something like that could be very relevant for the bantamweight title picture because that is both crazy and awesome. Yeah. I mean, I don't think it's a terrible idea to be no. to be perfectly honest with you. Like, uh, you know, one of the things I wanted to talk about here is what we think about Frankie Edgar's overall fortunes at this weight class, just because, 
you know, you've got like kind of a, a an already jam-packed title picture with with a fairly new champion in Peter Yawn and Aljamain Sterling kind of like knocking on the door, Marlon Marais being right there. Uh, obviously guys like uh, uh, Corey Sandhagen being on the list. And then you've got some very old friends of Frank Yeager, like Jose Aldo also hanging around. Like Frank Yeager gets this big win over the guy who was technically the number five ranked bantamweight in the world. But I also don't necessarily think that I come away from this fight being like, oh, wow, I can't wait now to see Frank Yeager fight Peter Yawn. Or like, I can't wait to see him fight Aljamain Sterling like immediately. I would like to see those guys kind of like all finish their business yeah. before we get around to the idea that Frankie Edgar should have a title shot. Uh, and I know that we are inclined to think that the opposite might happen just because of the history that we have with Frankie Edgar and the UFC and all of the title shots that he has gotten over the years. But like, I feel like perhaps the better track would be to have Frankie Edgar like fight his peers in, uh, you know, like a Dominic Cruz or, uh, you know, you, don't, you probably don't want to see him fight Jose Aldo again, but no, like, you know, I do not that that age of person like that instead of like, I don't, I don't, I don't really want to, I guess what I'm trying to say is I don't want them to throw Frankie Edgar in there with Peter Yan or Corey Sandhagen right off the bat. I would like, I think it would be fun to see him fight Dominic Cruz or someone of that ilk. Yeah. Have the peers, the, the elder statesman fight to determine who gets to slash has to go fight one of these young killers. Yeah. Makes sense. What did you think of, of the unrepentant Frankie Edgar in the post-fight interview here? Basically saying like, I keep hearing people say that I'm done. I don't want to hear that shit anymore now that I've had this bout with uh, with Munoz. I mean, depend, like regardless of who you really think win, like who you think won, like a good performance here by Frankie Yeager in his bantamweight debut. Yeah, and I totally get that that stance from him. Like I, I, I it's a totally understandable way to feel like that because you know, even if he maybe wasn't acknowledging it so much before the fight that he heard that and or. And honestly, a guy in his situation is probably going to imagine that even if people aren't actually saying it, like he's probably yeah. going to think like everybody's looking at me and thinking best years are behind you. You know, you're, you're not going to be the same guy that you used to be. And then to go out there in a new weight class, fight a guy who's a, a really relevant contender in the division and not only look really good, but win a close, tough fight like that. I could see how you come out of that feeling like, all right. I, I shut up a lot of people here and I deserve that. Like I deserve that respect of telling everybody like you don't know what you're talking about. If you think that I don't have any more good years left in me. And like, I could see that be a, uh, that being a big part of the motivation for Frankie Edgar probably at this point. Yeah. That and the money. That and the money. All right, let's do. Are you fucking kidding me, Ben? And then we'll go ahead and move on to round two. Ben, what is your, are you fucking kidding me this week? Well, Chad, as you may have noticed or heard about after the fact, uh, at the post-fight press conference, UFC President Dana White was asked about talk of Oscar De La Hoya coming out of retirement to fight again. And his response to that news is, cocaine isn't cheap. So what he's saying there, Chad, in case you just you need it spelled out for you, is he's calling Oscar De La Hoya a cocaine addict who is fighting for cocaine money right now. And the response to that, when Dana White said that to the assembled media, was a bit of a awkward silence. And then we kind of moved on. Everybody okay. was like, okay, we understand what you're saying. You're, you're saying that uh, this, you know, very well-respected, one of the great uh, boxers uh, in the lighter weight classes of all time, that he is out here just fighting to, to finance his cocaine habit. We understand that. We've taken note of it. 
We recorded it, we wrote it down, and now we'll move on to other topics. Are you fucking kidding me? This is, just, this is like this is just the world we live in now, huh? Guys gonna go out there and just basically be like, yeah, he's fighting for coke money. Next question. Everybody will be like, yeah, that's reasonable. That was a reasonable answer to this. Are you fucking kidding me? You fucking kidding me? Like you're saying maybe there should have been a follow-up? Maybe a maybe a follow-up. Maybe we could have got a follow-up there just to get him to to explain his uh his reasoning there a little bit. Also, though he's not wrong about cocaine, though. It is it is expensive. That is. I mean, he sounds like he's speaking from a, a place of authority. Yes, can, can at least somebody like put up their hand Christ. and be like, how, 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 what do you think it should cost? Like, just, just ballpark it. Like, what do you think would be a fair amount to charge for cocaine? I mean, we're, we're just taking all this on, uh, on face, at face value. Yep. Just kind of like, he would know and okay, <laughs> I guess. All right. All, all, this is, all this must be true. Yep. Uh, ben, did you see over the weekend the news that – Co-main event podcast favorite singing and dancing Jack Hermanson is going to headline a UFC event in December opposite Darren Till. I did. I did see that. Are you, are you fucking kidding me? Give it to me. It's mine. Yeah. I will take it. This is the rare positive. Are you fucking kidding me? And I would also like to share an email here that we got from Graham probably drinking is what is the, okay. how this thing came okay. over. That's how it was signed. Uh, which seems to me like he's he's angling to have sort of a Jack Hermanson style nickname, like maybe his name is Graham, probably Drinking Dinkins or something. I don't know. He didn't include his last name, but that's all we got here. But he's going to suggest this nickname. He says, in light of Jack Hermanson's fight announcement, I give you Jack, the one who knocks. No, the other one, not Brian Cranston Hermanson. <laughs> you know what? It's a mouthful, but it's a it's a fun journey to go on. Every time you say it, apparently. You fucking kidding me? I kind of love it. Fucking kidding me. That's going to do it for round number one. We will be right back. Round number two. Chad, I got to give you some credit. You personally, Chad Dundas, you came on, I believe when we had this discussion, maybe on Friday's Power Hour, maybe it was the Wednesday live chat. They all blend together for me. I can't remember. But you said when people are out here talking about how maybe they're the best light heavyweight in the world now, it's it's basically like trekking up to the top of Mount Zion's and thumbing your nose at the MMA gods. Yeah. And right after... Ryan Bader and Scott Coker tried to kind of slide into that conversation about how would John Jones vacating his light heavyweight title, moving up a division to heavyweight. Maybe Ryan Bader is sitting here as the best light heavyweight in the world. Maybe Bellator has the best light heavyweight division. And then Ryan Bader goes out there against a hungry young lion in Vadim Nemkov. And pretty quickly in that fight, he starts to get the look on his face like, Man, I wish this guy would just take it easy for a second and give a fella time to breathe. Like, you, like Vadim Nemkov, right off the bat here, sets a really high pace and is just going after Ryan Bader. And you could see, like, I remember once George Foreman talking about the experience of fighting well into his 40s as a boxer. And they were asking him about fighting younger opponents. And he said, there were times where I wished I could reach over and kind of tug on the guy's cape and tell him, like, hey, like, just... Just bring it down a little bit. Like, I wish you'd just just 
bring it, bring the intensity to maybe don't hit me so hard. Maybe don't throw so often. Let's just like, can we, can we bring the pace down a little bit? Ryan Bader was looking like he was starting to feel that way. And Vadim Nemkov just put him on, put it on him. Goes out there in the second yeah. round, kicks him upside the head, drops him, and then just swarms him until referee Kerry Hatley finally decides he's seen enough. And Ryan Bader, yeah, what is it? it's, no longer uh, the light heavyweight champion of Bellator. It's it's Monday about 12, it's 10 to 1 p.m. here in the one true time zone. I think Kerry Hatley is still thinking about stopping this fight. <laughs> uh, but I'll tell you what, Ben, I've learned, I can say with authority, I've learned two things during my years covering this sport. Just two, huh? Many, many years. Okay. Well, two that I can say author- authoritatively that I've definitely learned. Number one, you don't, you don't thumb your nose at the MMA gods. No. You don't hike down your fight shorts and slap your bear behind in the direction of the MMA gods because they are listening and they will fuck you up. That is what they do. <laughs> the other thing. Okay, that was the that first I've thing. Learned, okay. That was number one. That was thing, thing number one. Thing number two that I've learned is that if you are a steady veteran in your late 30s, a known guy, like a Ryan Bader, someone that people recognize, you want to have a clause in your contract that says no relatively unheralded 28-year-old Russians. Yeah. Like that's not a person that you should ever fight. Just that's all you need to know. Like if 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 a Bellator match of Rich Chow comes to you and he says, Brian, I got a relatively unheralded 28-year-old Russian I'd like you to fight. Leave that dude on red. <laughs> that's like you you're gone you're you're out of town yeah you got stuff you going reply six Ooh, weeks later like oh shit later. sorry just seeing this now yeah. yeah do you still do you are you still looking for somebody to fight that unheralded 28 year old russian and they'll be like no we fed uh liam mcgeary to him like two weeks ago <laughs> didn't you see it yeah but this was uh this was a this was a hard one i guess you could say ryan bader caught a hot one here in uh vadim nemkov who is your new bellator light heavyweight champion. Now, my question for you is, because you had floated during the Friday Power Hour when we were discussing this over on the Patreon, patreon.com slash co-main event, by the way, uh, you were floating the idea that vis-a-vis Scott Coker's uh, idea, like his his he floated the idea that maybe Bellator has the best light heavyweight division on the planet right now if John Jones does indeed vacate the title and go up to heavyweight. And one of the things you said was like, I don't believe that you can really say that you have the best light. He- I'm paraphrasing you, by the way, but like, how, that you dare, don't, you? how dare you paraphrase you don't, me? You don't think you can have the best light heavyweight division in the world if your champion is Ryan Bader, because we've seen him, uh, we've seen the best and worst from him already in the UFC. And we kind of think we know what his value is. And you said, maybe if your champion is relatively unheralded 28 year old Russian Vadim Nemkov, maybe then you can make the case okay, our champion is this guy and nobody really knows how good he is. Maybe that, maybe that helps you make your case. I like it. As, as we sit here on Monday, 48 hours or so removed from this fight, uh, do you believe that's true? Do you still think that's true? Do you think that the Bellator light heavyweight division can make as good or better a case as, as to its strength, its overall depth with Vadim Nemkov as the champion as compared to Ryan Bader? Yeah, honestly, I think that it at least becomes a more interesting conversation after Vadim Nemkov not only goes out there and beats Ryan Bader, but beats him decisively, like just beats the hell out of the guy. And his, his two losses, like he has a loss to Yuri Prochazko, which, you know, if you really want to get into that argument, I'm sure that loss is going to come up, but it was long enough ago. It was like five years ago. He was very early on in his career then. And I, it's long enough ago that I don't know if people are going to look at it and be like, well, that didn't, 
tell us, give us the whole book on Vadim Nemkov, the way that they will probably think that some of Ryan Bader's losses in the UFC kind of did give you the book on Ryan Bader, because those seem to have come closer to like whatever his athletic prime might be. Whereas now, you know, he, he's older, he goes out there, the, he, if he keeps holding it down as Bellator champ champ, I think a lot of people would just be more likely to see it as well. That says something about the quality of competition in Bellator, not that Ryan Bader went to Bellator and suddenly got so, so much better than he was in the UFC. But when Vadim Nemkov comes in there and wins in such a like very definitive, clear-cut, violent fashion, then I think that you can make a, a stronger case that like, hey, maybe we do have, like, look at this guy who uh, nobody was talking about before, and he comes out there, looks awesome in the fight, got goddamn Fedor Emelianenko standing there wearing a mask in his corner. And I, now, like, I, I recall about this today, if you're asking the question, like, who's the best light heavyweight in the world right now, assuming John Jones isn't in the pool. Like you cannot, he's not an option, not a playable character anymore at light heavyweight. You can't really say we know the answer to that question without John Jones. We, we've had him as the, like penciled in as the answer for so long. We haven't even had to have a conversation about who might be the best light heavyweight at the time. And now without him in there, it's like, it's all speculative. You're going, is Dominic Reyes the best light heavyweight? Because he seemed like he came the closest to beating John Jones. Maybe Tiago Santos, because he has a, a similar kind of claim on it. Maybe Vadim Nemkov, because he sure looked good going out there against Ryan Bader. Like now the the field and the conversation is suddenly wide open. Yeah. I mean, it never hurts to have Fedor in your crew. It does. That's what I'll say. Like just have him kind of standing behind you. Uh, you know, with his Fedor expression on his face. Yeah, that's, see, that's the thing. You can put the mask on Fedor, and I still know what his facial expression looks like under there at all times. You know? Yeah, we know what his, what his mouth is doing. Uh, so, um, I lost my train of thought here for a second. You think about uh, Fedor's mouth. You, next thing you know, all other thoughts get pushed out of your brain. I know how it goes. I know, I, I know what it was. And maybe I blocked it out because of the horror. But let's talk about the stoppage here. Okay. Uh, we've been talking about referee stoppages a lot in this sport over the last several weeks. We've seen some questionable ones uh, on both ends of the spectrum. Like we just talked earlier in the show about the, you know, some some instances where maybe one guy gets a good chance to come back and then the other guy gets what appears to be a, a, a pretty rapid fire stoppage. We all lived multiple lifetimes waiting for Kerry Hatley to step in and stop this fight. And I don't know if that is a good thing because Ryan Bader is a steady veteran who was the champion and and was out there putting the gold on the line. Or if we almost saw uh, Darth Bader get beat absolutely to death. Uh, what were your thoughts about this thing? Because this it went on for a while. Like you're watching it and you're like, oh, yeah. Oh, oh. And then at some point you get a stoppage. But it took a while. Let's just say that. It took a while. It did. When I was watching it in the moment, you know, I watched this one live on Friday night and watching it in the moment, I was like, whoa, man, like we're really, we're really giving Ryan Bader a chance to go out on his shield. A lot like, of rope. He is not going to be able to say that he was the victim of an early stoppage here. Like this is, <laughs> this is ongoing, you know? Um, and then like watching it back afterwards, I was like, honestly, maybe that's a good like good refereeing job because it's not yeah. like Bader was just lying there covering up, not moving. And Kerry Hatley just stood there watching him get pummeled while saying, show me something, Ryan. Like 
Bader was moving. Like he was trying to get back in the fight. He gets up and kind of does that little jog away, gets dropped again. Like he was doing enough. And I like I can respect the idea that it's a championship fight and he's a very experienced fighter. And it's not like some guy who is, you know, four and two versus somebody else who's like five and one. And you don't know whether they have the ability to withstand any of this stuff. Like these are experienced professionals fighting over a damn title. And he's trying, like he is trying to do something. He's trying to show you that he's still in the fight and he's doing just enough. And that just enough, like he's, there's never a period where there's just like a prolonged time of him just getting beat up and not doing anything about it. And so yeah. honestly, when I watched it back afterwards, I was like, maybe that is a pretty good stoppage. Maybe it is what you can hope for out of ref. And I would think that there were probably a lot of fighters watching it and going like, that's what I want. Like if I'm, if I'm in that situation, that's what I want is that opportunity to, to try to get back in it. Not many stoppages in this sport can be uh, described as ongoing. <laughs> However, like if you get the opportunity to call a stoppage ongoing, that means it's it's been happening for a while. Yeah, I mean, but, like uh, he was in a bad situation there for a while. But like we saw like in some of these fights, like we were just talking about in the UFC undercard there, there's some fights where you're looking at him and you're going like, okay, this this could be stopped at any time. And yet like the beating is still ongoing. And yet the guy is still trying to stay in this fight and he still wants to be in the fight clearly like he's not like just giving up and turtling up and waiting for the ref to save him and so i think there's something for that like giving him that that opportunity at least a little bit but it is it's still just such a fine line to walk and you're asking so much of the referees especially because it's like man if ryan bader had pulled it together had gotten a takedown right when he needed it gotten a clinch and then came back and won that fight later on like we'd be you know we'd be talking about what a great job of not stopping it like if he had been stopped right after he'd been head kicked and like when Nemkov jumps on him with hammer fist and he kind of rolls over if it gotten stopped then you can easily manage or imagine Bader popping back up with the WTF test like I honestly we ask so much of them it's such a we give them such a difficult job such a hard situation to put those reps in that might be a pretty good job of handling it by Kerry Hadley what now can be said of Ryan Bader as a guy who came over to Bellator in 2017, obviously on the heels of a lengthy UFC stint, uh, a guy who had been uh, the ultimate fighter champion of season eight back when the ultimate fighter kind of still mattered, and then comes over to Bellator in, in 2017, runs off five wins in a row, wins the light heavyweight title, wins the heavyweight title, becomes the champ champ, has, you know, wins over Fedor, wins over Matrione, uh, you know, win over Phil Davis, gets and then gets the uh, no contest against Czech Congo and now gets stopped in his first light heavyweight fight since uh, 2017, I believe, gets stopped by Vadim Nemkov. How, uh, what's, what, what, where does Ryan Bader go from here and how will we think of him, I guess is the question, Ben. Like, like much of his identity seemed to be wrapped up in this Bellator champ champ thing. And now that he still is the Bellator heavyweight champ, I don't necessarily know how much political capital that gives the guy since uh, Vadim Nemkov is probably looking around being like, I don't know, I weigh 230 before I do my weight cut. Like, I could fight there too. Yeah, I mean, this is a situation though that reminds you that it, this is why it's nice to have two belts because you can, you can lose one. You know what? Better it, than having one. Still got one at home, motherfuckers. Not, uh, yeah. it's not that easy to, to, to knock me out of here. Like I, I still, let me, let me go get my backup belt. We'll see then. Like, I don't know. I mean, maybe 
like if you're Ryan Bader and you're looking back on the whole career decision and everything that you made, where you come back over to Bellator and you breathe new life into your career, you become a double champ. Like it seems like a great decision for him. Like the signing with Bellator and everything that's happened since then, he got to beat Fedor, you know, like awesome shit has happened for Ryan Bader over there in Bellator. So he can't, no matter what, if it all ends tomorrow, uh, he had a good ride there and can't complain about anything. And if he ends up holding it down as Bellator heavyweight champ, like uh, assuming you can get Vadim Nemkov to stay in his lane, you'd, you'd think that maybe Scotty Coates would be like, Hey, look, we, you know what, we're kind of, uh, we're off the champ champ thing for a little while. Like we, we've, we've been doing enough of that. Like, why don't you just focus on trying to beat up some of the light heavyweights and see if we can find somebody for you to beat up that will help make the case that we want to make, which is that like, okay, maybe we've got a really a solid division here. Meanwhile, Ryan Bader can go up there with Bellator's old ass heavyweight division in which he is like just still a young buck compared to a lot of the other guys you got knocking around there. And he can keep making his case there. And then like, Everybody can make out there. Like, I don't know. I, th- I still think like Ryan Bader is going to be remembered mostly positively uh, because of how well things have gone for him in this Bellator run. You lose to a, to a young, hungry Russian guy, a guy who, who came in there, looked good, looked like he just wanted it more, looked like, you know, he, he, was, he was starving and you've been eating good. And yeah, like that happens in the fight game. We've seen it happen to a whole bunch of people and like, it's not, not thing really to be ashamed of. It's just kind of one of those things that happens, especially as you're an, an aging fighter. doesn't mean that Ryan Bader isn't still good or hasn't still had a good Bellator run. Yeah. And when you say it that way, I'm definitely inclined to agree with you uh, just because, you know, if Ryan Bader had stayed in the UFC, I can imagine he would have spent those three years between 2017 and 2020 doing stuff like fighting Johnny Walker fighting Nikita Krylov, you know, fighting Vulcan Uzdemir. Yep. And uh, the stuff he was able to do over there in Bellator, probably better. Probably better than than if that had been the case for Ryan Bader. In any case, that's going to do it for round number two. We will be right back with round number three. And the UFC has so solidified its stranglehold over the MMA world over the last couple years that it feels like it's been a long time since we had any significant cross-promotional beef. I don't know that, that we have spared really all that much thought, to be honest, with the age-old question of, of whether or not Bellator or 1FC or PFL or any of these other uh, second tier organizations could really challenge the UFC's dominance just because when, now that you have 42 events a year, you have the ESPN, ESPN plus deal. It seems like the UFC is really kind of hunkered down into an unshakable position as the dominant force in the MMA landscape over the last couple of years. And so maybe it's just, I don't know if it's nostalgia or if it's just, if it's just like, uh, you know, the feeling of something new here, but when I was looking at the uh, at the news headlines over the weekend, it was really it felt welcome to me to see Dana White asked about Scotty Coker's assessment of the Bellator and UFC light heavyweight divisions. It felt interesting to see Dana White get asked about uh, Patricio Pitbull, and it felt interesting to see his answers here. I will read. This is from the uh, 
the post-fight press conference here from the UFC event on Saturday night where he gets asked about uh, Scott Coker's uh, claim that Bellator might have the, two, the best 205-pound weight class in the world. Here's Dana White's response. Guys, everybody they have in their light heavyweight division, we let go of. He's got the best light heavyweight division. We let those guys all go. It's like the fucking dumbest thing I've heard, but I get it. He's got to fucking do his thing. I'm not shitting on him. He's got to try to do his thing. He's got to try to sell fights. The way that you don't sell fights is I've got the best light heavyweight division in the world. Everybody that was there was let go from here. It's a pretty silly statement. Now, let's just talk about that one for a minute before we get into the uh, the clap and the clap back here <laughs> to uh, Patricio Pitbull. Uh, number one, is it is the sport better when there's a little bit of competition when, you know, despite the fact that they've always kind of maintained, I don't know if you would say, I don't, yeah, well, I know you would not say friendly, but you've, you know, Dana White and Scott Coker have, re, have always maintained a somewhat respectful public relationship. Does the sport feel better to you when there's someone out there for Dana White and the UFC to be beefing with even just a little bit? You know, I don't even know if it needs to be the, the beefing that I need. Uh, but I do like when there does seem to be some competition just because as we've talked about before, it makes everybody have to do better. It makes everybody have to put on a better product. I think what we've seen at times when the UFC feels like it doesn't have anybody at all to have any sort of competition with, it will relax a little bit and just be like, well, hey, look, you you want to watch some fight sports, man. We're the ones We're the one thing. We'll just serve you up whatever we got and you will take it and shut up and like it. And when you have a little bit of like you know somebody bidding for fighter services, some of these actual like uh, battles back and forth between promoters, both trying to sign the same guys, it's good for the fighters because it, it raises their salaries. Like they need there to be someone else out there that can uh, like get into this bidding war, and so the UFC can't just be like, "Here's a contract, take it or leave it." If you want to fight for money, this is the only chance you're going to get to do it. And but like. Like one of the things we talked about was how it's smarter for Scott Coker to try to make this argument on like a weight class by weight class basis. Just like it's smarter for him to try to focus on individual weight classes as he's trying to go after free agents and, and build up the roster a little bit. You can't just be like, hey, we've got the best fighters in the world just all across the board. Because one, it's not true and we know it's not true. And it's just like it, it it's not close enough to being true to get our attention really. But if you say like, hey, we've been really going after, we've been signing free agents in this weight class, uh, we've been picking up interesting people from all over the place in, in this weight class, and now look at the collection of people we have, isn't that fun and exciting? And maybe we even, have, especially at a time when the UFC's light heavyweight division is like a big question mark, we don't know who's going to end up on top of the heap there. That's a good time to show up and be like, hey, we think maybe we have some of the best light heavyweights in the world. And I mean, Dana White's going to do a thing where like, hey, once he's had some fighter on under contract, as soon as that guy is out of the UFC, he's going to use that at whether the guy left as a free agent. You know, sometimes we've seen people leave on wins. Sometimes it's just like they request a release and get it. And but Dana White's going to use it as see, that's proof. He must not be that good because if he's so good, why didn't we want him? Right. Which is like you could just use that argument. Cleveland Cavaliers say about LeBron too, right? <laughs> They're just like, oh, well, he won some titles in Miami. Well, we, you know, we will, we let that guy go. Yeah, and see, like so. you can, like it becomes like in like a self fulfilling kind of like argument where you can just be like, he if he was good, we wouldn't have let him go, and we let him go, therefore he must not be good. Uh, yeah, but like I mean, you kind of expect that, like out of Daniel. But it is, it, 
like I, his one of his initial reactions, I think, was when somebody was like, what about Scott Coker? Did you hear Scott Coker saying he has the best light heavyweight uh, division? And Dana White said, no, I hadn't heard. He said that. Isn't he cute? And it's like, OK, well, we're doing this little like little digs at Scott Coker. But let's remember how like the last MMA venture that Scott Coker had before this, the way you got him out of it was to buy him out. Like you bought him out and you had him come sit around the, the Zoof offices playing Angry Bird until his uh, non-compete clause was up. And then he went over there to Bellator. And it's proof. Like I think at, at this point, we have enough evidence to say Scott Coker knows what the hell he's doing. Like Scott Coker is a good fight promoter who knows how to build this stuff up, which is a thing that like Dana White hasn't had to do in a long time. Like he came in uh, with the Fertitas, bought the UFC when it was like the most known brand. They built it up from there. You know, they did a good job with it from there, but like they had a good head start on everybody. And Scott Coker has done it a couple times now with Strikeforce. And then he goes over to Bellator and does a good job. Like Bellator is better now for having Scott Coker in charge than it was when Bjorn Redmond was in charge. And that doesn't seem like that's even an arguable point. Like clearly Scott Coker knows what the hell he's doing. Uh, and like, I think you got to give the guy his respect for that. Yeah. And we talked about on Friday on the power hour over on the uh, Patreon that like, if you run down, you know, the top seven or eight guys in, in both divisions, they're really not that, different to be honest with you like uh you take john jones out of the equation obviously having jones in the ufc would would give them a huge competitive advantage but you know if you're just if you're going back and forth between guys like dominic reyes tiago santos jan blokovitz glover Teixeira, anthony smith yuri prochaska volkan uzdemir with the guys that they got over in bellator uh competitively speaking it just doesn't seem like there is that big of a gulf um at the same time you know, you got to point out like that that's basically the entire Bellator light heavyweight roster is if you run down their top seven or eight guys. And with the UFC, uh, you're only halfway through the top 15. Yeah. So clearly in terms of like depth and sheer numbers of bodies, the UFC probably still has a, a significant advantage. Here's what Dana White said about Corey Anderson, who they obviously uh, just lost via free agency who went over to Bellator. He said, I think what he feels and we feel is that he can be more competitive there. Which, again, kind of like a classic Dana White uh, statement about Corey Anderson, who up until over the weekend was officially the number four ranked light heavyweight in the UFC, now goes over there to Bellator. He did exit on the heels of a first round KO loss to Jan Blokovic, but prior to that had won four in a row and had most recently uh, taken out Johnny Walker via first round TKO at UFC 244. So the idea that uh, Corey Anderson wasn't competitive in the UFC light heavyweight division is, is... uh, a misnomer, I guess you could say. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, again, you, you expect that that's the, the stance that the UFC is going to take with it there. And I'm still not letting go of my theory, by the way, that uh, for the UFC's perspectives, they look at Corey Anderson as a potential poison pill that you slip into the water supply over there at Bellator. Uh, if he can go out there and get the Bellator light heavyweight championship and then hold it down with a, a mix of just kind of methodical wrestling and a total lack of charisma that maybe that's the best thing for you. If you're the UFC, like, be like we, we wish you all well, I'm glad to see it's working out so well that the relationship is working out so well for everybody over there. Um, so I don't know, but like, yeah, I do feel like at least in those divisions, like we used to see it before. Remember when uh, there was the battle over the services of one Eddie Alvarez and you see these glimpses sometimes where you're like, okay, see how much better it is for the fighters and even like better for the fans when 
there is this actual tension between these two organizations where they both want some of the, the top talent and we are all going to be interested in see where they land. And then somebody's going to have to pay up for them because somebody else might want them. And that's a big problem that fighters have is that they like most of them just like, even when they go to test the free agency market, they get to it and it looks like, well, shit, like if Bellator is not really interested in you, then what is it like UFC or bare knuckle boxing? there's still just not a whole lot out there. And so when you see those divisions where the UFC does get super interested in it and you have these like two sides that you can kind of play them against, like they end up with a, a much better deal there. And like, it's interesting to see it happening at light heavyweight. It made sense when it was happening at lightweight because there's just so much more talent at lightweight. But then now like you see it with the Michael Chandler situation, like where, for a while, Michael Chandler had been doing that thing where every time his contract comes up in Bellator, he's like acting like he might go sign with the UFC, but then just ends up resigning with Bellator. This time seems like he's really interested in signing with the UFC. Dana White keeps talking about him as if like, okay, I would be interested in having that guy. And then though he gets turned around and somebody's asking him about uh, Patricio Ferrer and Dana White doesn't seem like, he seems like he never heard the name until right. somebody's like, yeah. and so he's like Pitbull. He's like, oh, Pitbull. Okay. Uh, and then the guy's like, what do you think of Pitbull? And he's just like, I don't know. Like, right. and it's like, well, he did beat the guy who you're interested in. So maybe that means he's pretty good. Yeah, it was, it was a, it's a weird exchange. And then Dana White talking about his hearing afterwards, like he can't hear it very well anymore. And if you're on his left side and you have an accent and he's not going to be able to understand what you say, uh, it was just like kind of a senior moment there all the way around for Dana White at the, at the press conference. But like, we're, we're not really buying this, right? That like Dana White that doesn't know no who the guys in Bellator are, right? Yeah. That, yeah. I mean, especially it's like if you were interested enough to know who Michael Chandler is and just be like, OK, that guy deserves it. Like that guy deserves a look and everything. Then like presumably you've seen some of the fights and you may have heard that he had some memorable fights with the Pitbull brothers. So that, yeah. that seems like the kind of thing that you would know. All right. Well, that's going to do it here for round number three. Ben, let's do just saying stuff and then we can get out of here for this week. Ben, uh, this week after the co-main event got canceled and including the five-round main event of this UFC event on Saturday night. I watched all of the main card fights of this thing in under 45 minutes. Well, okay. You had three first-round finishes. You had one fight that went into the second round, uh, and then, of course, the main event went the distance. So I was left with the feeling that unless you have absolutely nothing else going on on Saturday night, why on earth would you watch these things live? Like, seriously, this product is so much better if you wait and watch it later and skip through all the downtime, uh, which I think, you know, at this point is frankly pretty easy to do on ESPN plus. And, and that's cool for me, but it also made me wonder, is that really what you want from your live sports product? If you are ESPN and the UFC, I'm just saying, I'm just saying, just saying 45 minutes, maybe sat down, sat down Sunday morning, 45 minutes later, I'm done. I'm ready to go on with my day. You're just saying that maybe it would behoove them to have a live sports product that people felt compelled to watch live. Like, like you had to watch it live, which used to be the feeling of the UFC. Like it was a thing you absolutely had to watch it live. It was, it was just, you wanted to be there. You wanted to see it. Now it's so much better if you wait and watch it later. I'm just saying. Just saying. Well, Chad, this week I'm just saying. Did you did you feel that? Did you feel that in the air, uh, like a like an electrical charge? Oh, is the Undertaker coming out? It got cold in here. What's going on? I'll tell you what it is. 
It's a Robbie Lawler fight week, Chad. Oh, okay. For yeah. the first time since August of 2019, violent Bob Lawler is getting back in the cage to do the damn thing with Neil Magny at the UFC Fight Night event coming up on Saturday. So I'm just saying, you know what? It's been a minute since we've seen our guy, Robbie Lawler. And to tell you the truth, I feel like we need him now more than ever. Okay. Help us, Robbie Lawler. <laughs> You're our only hope. I'm just saying. Just saying. See, I was trying to make a joke about The Undertaker coming out, but it turned out I was actually kind of like on the right track there. The Undertaker gets scared when he hears Robbie Lawler's music. Yes, fact. Yeah. Anyway, that is going to do it for this week's co-main event podcast. Of course, we will be back the rest of the week over on the Patreon page for the Wednesday live chat, as well as our Rewatchmen podcast, where we're going back through uh, the single season limited series Watchmen over on HBO and talking about it episode by episode. If that sounds cool, that's something you can get down with at patreon.com slash co-main event. And of course, on Friday, we'll be doing the power hour over there as well. Then one week from today, we're back for the proper, always free and uh, we'll probably be looking at the stuff that happens at this UFC event. Ben was just talking about Anthony Smith versus Alexander Rakic is the main event. Alexa Grasso also on the card, and we're running it back, Ben. We're doing it again, brother. Uh, Ion Kutalaba versus Magomed Ankalev. So uh, you're going to get the chance to, to put the scrap on all over again. As for right now, though, we are done. We are through. We are out. You know... I was thinking this week uh, when I was sitting down there to watch the the USC fight night here last weekend or the last weekend's fight night event where if if you could offer me like a premium premium service for, for ESPN Plus where it's like all right we'll just crunch everything down and give it to you like just one fight right after another no no filler if you could somehow offer me that how much more would I pay like in real time. Yeah, something you, you you have to tear the space time fabric to do it in yeah, real time. You're building a completely different reality where the people who pay more get to watch a, like a uh, yeah an accelerated live event. How much more would you be willing to pay? Because I feel like it's kind of a lot. Yeah, I would be you know I would be willing to pay a lot, but I will I'll say like like one of the things that's best about ESPN Plus, and I don't know that I should even be telling them this, is that how easy it is to like skip through the entire card and like find what you're looking for and just watch it as it happens. Um, although then I would miss out on the promo where Paul Acosta says over and over again that he is going to beat Israel Adesanya and he will try 